Chapters 29 and 30 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzi. Chapter 29 The Motive. Now, at first sight, the murder in the Regent's Park appeared both to police and public as one of those silly, clumsy crimes, obviously the work of a novice and absolutely purposeless, seeing that it could but inevitably lead its perpetrators, without any difficulty, to the gallows. You see, a motive had been established. Seek him whom the crime benefits, say our French confrère. But there was something more than that. Constable James Funnel, on his beat, turned from Portland Place into Park Crescent a few minutes after he had heard the clock at Holy Trinity Church, Marylebone, strike half-past two. The fog at that moment was perhaps not quite so dense as it was later on in the morning, and the policeman saw two gentlemen in overcoats and top-hats, leaning arm-in-arm arm against the railings of the square close to the gate. He could not, of course, distinguish their faces because of the fog, but he heard one of them saying to the other, "'It is but a question of time, Mr. Cohen. I know my father will pay the money for me, and you will lose nothing by waiting.' To this the other apparently made no reply, and the constable passed on. When he returned to the same spot, after having walked over his beat, the two gentlemen had gone, but later on it was near this very gate that the two keys referred to at the inquest had been found. "'Another interesting fact,' added the man in the corner, with one of those sarcastic smiles of his which Polly could not quite explain, was the finding of the revolver upon the scene of the crime. That revolver, shown to Mr. Ashley's valet, was sworn to by him as being the property of his master.' All these facts made, of course, a very remarkable, so far quite unbroken chain of circumstantial evidence against Mr. John Ashley. No wonder, therefore, that the police, thoroughly satisfied with Mr. Fisher's work and their own, applied for a warrant against the young man and arrested him in his rooms in Clarges Street exactly a week after the committal of the crime. As a matter of fact, you know, experience has invariably taught me that when a murderer seems particularly foolish and clumsy, and proofs against him seem particularly damning. That is the time when the police should be most guarded against pitfalls. Now in this case, if John Ashley had indeed committed the murder in Regent's Park, in the manner suggested by the police, he would have been a criminal in more senses than one, for idiocy of that kind is to my mind worse than many crimes. The prosecution brought its witnesses up in triumphal array one after another. There were the members of the Harewood Club, who had seen the prisoner's excited condition after his heavy gambling losses to Mr. Aaron Cohen. There was Mr. Hatherell, who, in spite of his friendship for Ashley, was bound to admit that he had parted from him at the corner of Bond Street at twenty minutes to two, and had not seen him again till his return home at five a.m. Then came the evidence of Arthur Chips, John Ashley's valet. It proved of a very sensational character. He deposed that on the night in question his master came home at about ten minutes to two. Chips had then not yet gone to bed. Five minutes later Mr. Ashley went out again, telling the valet not to sit up for him. Chips could not say at what time either of the young gentlemen had come home. That short visit home, presumably to fetch the revolver, was thought to be very important, and Mr. John Ashley's friends felt that his case was practically hopeless. The valet's evidence, and that of James Funnel, the constable who had overheard the conversation near the park railings, were certainly the two most damning proofs against the accused. I assure you, I was having a rare old time that day. There were two faces in court to watch, which was the greatest treat I had had for many a day. One of these was Mr. John Ashley's. 
Here's his photo. Short, dark, dapper, a little racy in style, but otherwise he looks a son of a well-to-do farmer. He was very quiet and placid in court, and addressed a few words now and again to his solicitor. He listened gravely, and with an occasional shrug of the shoulders to the recital of the crime, such as the police had reconstructed it, before an excited and horrified audience. Mr. John Ashley, driven to madness and frenzy by terrible financial difficulties, had first of all gone home in search of a weapon, then waylaid Mr. Aaron Cohen somewhere on that gentleman's way home. The young man had begged for delay. Mr. Cohen, perhaps, was obdurate. But Ashley followed him with his importunities almost to his door. There, seeing his creditor determined at last to cut short the painful interview, he had seized the unfortunate man at an unguarded moment from behind, and strangled him. Then, fearing that his dastardly work was not fully accomplished, he had shot twice at the already dead body, missing it both times from sheer nervous excitement. The murderer then must have emptied his victim's pockets, and finding the key of the garden, thought that it would be a safe way of evading capture by cutting across the squares, under the tunnel, and so through the more distant gate which faced Portland Place. The loss of the revolver was one of those unforeseen accidents which a retributive providence places in the path of the miscreant, delivering him by his own act of folly into the hands of human justice. Mr. John Ashley, however, did not appear the least bit impressed by the recital of his crime. He had not engaged the services of one of the most eminent lawyers, expert at extracting contradictions from witnesses by skilful cross-examinations. Oh, dear me, no! He had been contented with those of a dull, prosy, very second-rate limb of the law, who, as he called his witnesses, was completely innocent of any desire to create a sensation. He rose quietly from his seat, and amidst breathless silence called the first of three witnesses on behalf of his client. He called three, but he could have produced twelve, gentlemen members of the Ashton Club in Great Portland Street, all of whom swore that at three o'clock in the morning of February 6th, that is to say, at the very moment when the cries of murder roused the inhabitants of Park Square West, and the crime was being committed, Mr. John Ashley was sitting quietly in the club rooms of the Ashton, playing bridge with three witnesses. He had come in a few minutes before three, as the hall porter of the club testified, and stayed for about an hour and a half. I need not tell you that this undoubted, this fully proved alibi was a positive bombshell in the stronghold of the prosecution. The most accomplished criminal could not possibly be in two places at once, and though the Ashton Club transgresses in many ways against the gambling laws of our very moral country, yet its members belong to the best, most unimpeachable classes of society. Mr. Ashley had been seen and spoken to at the very moment of the crime by at least a dozen gentlemen whose testimony was absolutely above suspicion. Mr. John Ashley's conduct throughout this astonishing phase of the inquiry remained perfectly calm and correct. It was no doubt the consciousness of being able to prove his innocence with such absolute conclusion that had steadied his nerves throughout the proceedings. His answers to the magistrate were clear and simple, even on the ticklish subject of the revolver. "'I left the club, sir,' he explained, fully determined to speak with Mr. Cohen alone, in order to ask him for a delay in the settlement of my debt to him. You will understand that I should not care to do this in the presence of other gentlemen. I went home for a minute or two, not in order to fetch a revolver, as the police assert, for I always carry a revolver about with me in foggy weather, but in order to see if a very important business letter had come for me in my absence. Then I went out again, and met Mr. Aaron Cohen, not far from the Harewood Club. 
I walked the greater part of the way with him, and our conversation was of the most amicable character. We parted at the top of Portland Place, near the gate of the square, where the policeman saw us. Mr. Cohen then had the intention of cutting across the square, as being a shorter way to his own house. I thought the square looked dark and dangerous in the fog, especially as Mr. Cohen was carrying a large sum of money. We had a short discussion on the subject, and finally I persuaded him to take my revolver, as I was going home only through very frequented streets, and moreover carried nothing that was worth stealing. After a little demur, Mr. Cohen accepted the loan of my revolver, and that is how it came to be found on the actual scene of the crime. Finally, I parted from Mr. Cohen a very few minutes after I had heard the church clock striking a quarter before three. I was at the Oxford Street end of Great Portland Street at five minutes to three, and it takes at least ten minutes to walk from where I was to the Ashton Club. This explanation was all the more credible, mind you, because the question of the revolver had never been very satisfactorily explained by the prosecution. A man who has effectually strangled his victim would not discharge two shots of his revolver for, apparently, no other purpose than that of rousing the attention of the nearest passer-by. It was far more likely that it was Mr. Cohen who shot, perhaps wildly into the air, when suddenly attacked from behind. Mr. Ashley's explanation, therefore, was not only plausible, it was the only possible one. You will understand, therefore, how it was that after nearly half an hour's examination, the magistrate, the police, and the public were alike pleased to proclaim that the accused left the court without a stain upon his character. CHAPTER Thirty, FRIENDS Yes, interrupted Polly eagerly, since for once her acumen had been at least as sharp as his. But suspicion of that horrible crime only shifted its taint from one friend to another, and of course I know— But that's just it, he quietly interrupted. You don't know. Mr. Walter Hatherell, of course, you mean. So did everyone else, at once. The friend, weak and willing, committing a crime on behalf of his cowardly, yet more assertive friend who had tempted him to evil. It was a good theory, and was held pretty generally, I fancy, even by the police. I say even, because they worked really hard in order to build up a case against young Hatherell, but the great difficulty was that of time. At the hour when the policeman had seen the two men outside Park Square together, Walter Hatherell was still sitting in the Harewood Club, which he never left until twenty minutes to two. Had he wished to waylay and rob Aaron Cohen, he would not have waited surely till the time when presumably the latter would have already reached home. Moreover, twenty minutes was an incredibly short time in which to walk from Hanover Square to Regent's Park without the chance of cutting across the squares to look for a man whose whereabouts you could not determine to within twenty yards or so, to have an argument with him, murder him, and ransack his pockets. And then there was the total absence of motive. But, said Polly meditatively, for she remembered now that the Regent's Park murder, as it had been popularly called, was one of those which had remained as impenetrable a mystery as any other crime had ever been in the annals of the police. The man in the corner cocked his funny bird-like head well to one side and looked at her, highly amused, evidently, at her perplexity. "'You do not see how that murder was committed?' he asked with a grin. Polly was bound to admit that she did not. "'If you had happened to have been in Mr. John Ashley's predicament,' he persisted, "'you do not see how you could conveniently have done away with Mr. Aaron Cohen, pocketed his winnings, and then led the police of your country entirely by the nose by proving an indisputable alibi?' "'I could not arrange conveniently,' she retorted, "'to be in two different places half a mile apart, at one and the same time. "'No, I quite admit that you could not do this unless you also had a friend.' 
"'A friend? But you say—' "'I say that I admired Mr. John Ashley, for his was the head which planned the whole thing, but he could not have accomplished the fascinating and terrible drama without the help of willing and able hands.' "'Even then,' she protested. "'Point number one, he began excitedly, fidgeting with his inevitable piece of string. "'John Ashley and his friend, Walter Hatherell, leave the club together, and together decide on the plan of campaign. Hatherell returns to the club, and Ashley goes to fetch the revolver, the revolver which played such an important part in the drama, but not the part assigned to it by the police. Now try to follow Ashley closely as he dogs Aaron Cohen's footsteps. Do you believe that he entered into conversation with him? That he walked by his side? That he asked for delay? No. He sneaked behind him and caught him by the throat, as the garroters used to do in the fog. Cohen was apoplectic, and Ashley is young and powerful. Moreover, he meant to kill. But the two men talked together outside the square gates, protested Polly, one of whom was Cohen and the other Ashley. Pardon me, he said, jumping up in his seat like a monkey on a stick. There were not two men talking outside the square gates. According to the testimony of James Funnell, the constable, two men were leaning arm in arm against the railings, and one man was talking. Then you think that— at the hour when James Funnell heard Holy Trinity clock striking half-past two, Aaron Cohen was already dead. Look how simple the whole thing is, he added eagerly, and how easy after that, easy, but oh, dear me, how wonderfully, how stupendously clever. As soon as James Funnell has passed on, John Ashley, having opened the gate, lifts the body of Aaron Cohen in his arms and carries him across the square. The square is deserted, of course, but the way is easy enough, and we must presume that Ashley had been in it before. Anyway, there was no fear of meeting anyone. In the meantime, Hatherell has left the club. As fast as his athletic legs can carry him, he rushes along Oxford Street in Portland Place. It had been arranged between the two miscreants that the square gate should be left on the latch. Close on Ashley's heels now, Hatherell too cuts across the square, and reaches the further gate in good time to give his confederate a hand in disposing the body against the railings. Then, without another instant's delay, Ashley runs back across the gardens, straight to the Ashton Club, throwing away the keys of the dead man on the very spot where he had made it a point of being seen and heard by a passerby. Hatherell gives his friend six or seven minutes' start, then he begins the altercation, which lasts two or three minutes, and finally rouses the neighborhood with cries of murder and report of pistol, in order to establish that the crime was committed at the hour when its perpetrator has already made out an indisputable alibi. "'I don't know what you think of it all, of course,' added the funny creature as he fumbled for his coat and gloves. "'But I call the planning of that murder, on the part of novices, mind you, one of the cleverest pieces of strategy I have ever come across. It is one of those cases where there is no possibility whatever now of bringing the crime home to its perpetrator or his abettor. They have not left a single proof behind them. They foresaw everything, and each acted his part with a coolness and courage which, applied to a great and good cause, would have made fine statesmen of them both. As it is, I fear, they are just a pair of young blackguards who have escaped human justice and have only deserved the full and ungrudging admiration of yours very sincerely. He had gone. Polly wanted to call him back, but his meagre person was no longer visible through the glass door. There were many things she would have wished to ask of him. What were his proofs, his facts? His were theories, after all, and yet somehow— she felt that he had solved once again one of the darkest mysteries of great criminal London. End of chapters 29 and 30